The Digital Adoption Show brought to you by WebFix. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the new season of the Digital Adoption Show. I'm your host for the episode, Gokul Suresh, and I head the growth and field marketing at WebFix. And today, I'm really excited to host Richard Boris, a digital adoption expert, evangelist, and a L&D leader with over two decades of experience and insights, and more importantly, a dear friend, right? Rich has worked with insurance giants like Sentry, Travelers, and Hartford, and brings immense expertise and knack for making people learn creatively, right? So welcome to the show, Richard. Um, I know we've been talking about you joining the podcast for a while, right? I've been really glad you could finally make it. Welcome again. Yeah. I am. I'm very excited to be here with you, you know, and, and I appreciate it very much. And I also appreciate you said two decades because the truth of the, the matter, if you look at the gray hair, we're talking over four decades. And if you want me to tell a little bit about myself to introduce, I can start that if, if you'd like. That, that would be awesome. I mean, maybe not the two decades, talk about the four decades, right? So if I do all four decades, this will turn into a series and not a single episode, <laughs> uh, I imagine, right? So actually, I began as a third grade teacher back in the 1970s, at the late 1970s, and my degrees are all in education. And the reason I bring up my, my time in, in as a public school teacher is because back then computers were very rare and we had one computer for our entire school and we would push it around on a car. And I was one of the two teachers that would be the computer guy and push the computers around on the cart. Well, little did I know that that was going to be the impetus for my career in instructional technology. Because what happened when I decided to leave teaching and go into corporate learning, one of the companies, it was Travelers at the time, they said, this guy knows about computers. We want to hire him because there's this new stuff, computer-based training. Well, I knew more about the cart than I did about the computer. So they, they, they didn't assess that very well. But anyways, I, I coded the very first computer-based training course at Travelers using a mainframe. And on that mainframe, it was line by line. And if if you got four screens, we called them screens done in one day, you, you had a great day. We, we completed this very first course. It was considered a major milestone and a success. But as a learning course, it actually was a, a unmitigated failure. Because the course was about how to use a keyboard. And the fact of the matter is you had to use the keyboard to learn how to use the keyboard. So we were kind of fundamentally backwards in, in what we did. Nonetheless, that was what set my career and my passion for instructional technology off uh, way back into the early 19, mid-1980s. But the neatest thing about my career, and I know I'm probably going too long here, is that my career actually coincides with the advent and the evolution of instructional technology. So I've gotten to be a firsthand historical artifact as we evolved for computer-based training and live virtual and the use of AI and, and whatever. And I got to be part of all those first. So I had a very exciting career that way. And the other thing that in reflection that I hadn't thought about a lot until actually you and I talked one day was I also saw the change in how instructional design changes. What is a good learner experience look like? What are we trying to achieve in that quote unquote uh, learning module or a learning event? or asset. And that has shifted as well, not just the technology. So again, I've been very, very fortunate, had a great career, and I've seen a lot. You know, I'm really glad that these kind of conversation is coming out. We, we never spoke about this. And I think it just came in naturally. I mean, that's awesome. Right. And yeah, Richard, I'm really excited to talk about those uh, nuances that we spoke about, um, you know, how that L&D is changing as well. Right. So but before we get into all those conversations, I think, okay. uh, you know, we've just moved up our entire rapid fire 
questions for the podcast and you know, the whole goal is to warm you up i think you already warmed up in a way but yeah so i have a few questions for you whatever comes on top of your mind right just shoot it out right all good i'm ready okay perfect so the last book you read or the last podcast you heard the last book i read atlas of the heart by brene brown i don't okay, read a lot of books I, i i read way too many articles online and not a lot of uh-huh. books but that was the last mm-hmm. book. all right um your biggest pet peeve well i'll make it appropriate to today's conversation and th- and that's <laughs> that i see so many people in the L&D profession not investing in their own learning around learning interesting all right and i have a uh, you know very relatable question there so one thing that the L&D professionals need to unlearn well that that's a whole another conversation too i would say the old public education model that we all have in our heads and our experiences that we deem as a success and we think back to what those are and what we should really be thinking to is where have i learned the most what was that particular experience like where do i learn mm-hmm. not necessarily that interesting all right and something very light i mean one app that you spend the most time on i actually spend too much time on linkedin because it brings me to many many other assets very fascinating mm-hmm. people and it brings me to actually a lot of practitioners that don't necessarily seek out notoriety they may not be true thought leaders but i believe practitioners are an under leveraged gold mine for our industry awesome so are you warmed up now i I'm, i'm warm are you are you doing all right <laughs> yes all right all right so all right i'll i'll jump into the questions right i mean um there's a okay. lot that we caught up before this podcast as well and lot to cover so you know i want to first of all talk about where we first met right century insurance i mean that's that's where we yes. came into conversation and uh, uh, your stint and you know i learned a lot lot of things from you and the way you had set up the entire organizational learning initiatives right you you spearheaded that at century so and can you actually break it down for the listeners what what was that entire setup that you have created what is the entire structure that you created for learning at century and uh, you know, I'll, i'll do my um, my very best um i'm sorry i'm jumping on top of you here i guess i'm i'm too warmed up i need to slow down um well, the century story for me century was a gift to ending my career In late 2016, I received a job description from a recruiter and I read this and I was semi-retired at the time and I looked at my wife and I said, if this job and opportunity is for real, this would be the greatest way I could cap my career in this opportunity. And it ne- it did not disappoint one bit. Century was a company that was really looking to invest in their town. They sit in the middle of Wisconsin and so the ability to attract high talent versus grow talent, they finally had a, a a deep understanding that we needed to develop and grow our own talent and we needed to invest seriously in this because we're not going to necessarily attract the best of the best easily to the central center of Wisconsin and so that was their their main impetus and what they were trying to achieve and in, in this investment and so the best thing that happened in that story is I got to spend a lot of time with the senior leadership team up front and within that time we were able to build out a very robust contemporary learning model and the beauty is they were participating in the build of that strategy so they owned it along with and stakeholder engagement if you read the research stakeholder engagement is your number one predictor of success in these types of initiatives and I had that so within the build of that strategy we developed a a, a model that said we are going to be business partners not service provide we are going to have a very stringent governance model where we will have have accountability and conversation on a very specific cadence all of the time our focus is on performance and change of behavior it was not around learning events and learning assets 
Every if and we established this as part of our strategy. If we could not identify a business outcome or a performance metric or KPIs, then maybe that isn't a learning initiative we should be embarking. Because if the business can't articulate and quantify, then how can we do that? And that gave us our strategic perspective as to what our priorities were. Where were the business needs across the entire enterprise? But other mm -hmm. smaller parts of that strategy, we had a um, no lecture model. We brought people together for a workshop, interactive. We are going to practice, apply, reflect, debrief, get feedback. Content was always going to be disseminated in a different manner, but we were not going to use valuable, valuable employee time for those kinds of things. We looked at the whole person. Not we, we looked at the head and the heart. We believe deeply, and this is important for today's conversation, in learning in the flow of work and the moment of need. So even before we built out or decided we needed to bring in a brand new DAP, which I think we're going to talk about in a bit, the idea of five moments of need, Conrad Gottfriedson, Bob Mosier, they were very critical. But the idea of learning in the flow of work was very, very important as part of that initial strategy. And our senior stakeholders understood. Yeah, and um, like you put it right away, I mean, uh, learning in the flow of work, digital adoption, I think that's where we connected. That's where we had a lot of conversation itself, yep. right? And I'm really curious of how the whole concept of digital adoption platforms or learning in the flow of work changed your perspective within L&D, right? And, and another interesting question, um, were there any apprehensions when it came in, right? And if there were, how did you deal with the entire concept? So I guess there's two parts to that. So did it change uh -huh. my perspective? Actually, a DAP reinforced my deep beliefs in informal learning. Back in the day, we used to talk a lot about formal learning, meaning you go to a classroom or some kind of an event, and informal learning, or what we now call learning in the flow of work, right? These are kind of, they could be through coaching and mentoring, or more importantly, experiential. And that was also part of our, our, our learning strategy. So a DAP for me was a gift. It reinforced my own core beliefs of what I believe the entire spectrum of learning should be. But was there apprehension on the part of, I would say, the senior stakeholders initially in particular? There were lots of questions and lots of dialogue. But again, the fact that we had a governance model and I had spent so much time with the senior stakeholders, we were able to work through those types of things. And it really came from comfort. And also, it also came from opportunities where we applied our initial efforts in DAP, where we knew we could make a very big impact quickly, and then tell the story to the other organizations that might be a little more apprehensive and a little more skittish around what that was going to do. Interesting. And um, and how did you actually come up across like a DAP like WhatFix? So we how did that end? Well, when I when I first arrived at Century, believe it or not, they actually had a precursor to DAP, a different tool that you don't even hear about anymore. So they had, they, they had tried to build out their help facility. Let's call it that. And what they had done was added all sorts of assets and job aids and reference tools. And it very much was not helping the learner or the user in the flow of work. It was just a bunch was of that resources a, uh, that they could access. So we had to overcome that perspective because that had been done prior to Century University at Century. So uh -huh. that, that uh -huh. became a, a problem. But so what I had to teach and unlearn in a lot of cases, as you say, is I had to show the, the uh, end users and the senior stakeholders, the investors per se, the benefit of what a good DAP could be and how critical it was to provide the right content at the right mm -hmm. moment of need 
And as I used, I always call it JQ, just in time, just enough, just for me. Not all of these other types of things that get in the way. And that became the, the journey. But in retrospect, it, it was amazing how Century adopted DAP. But as you and I've discussed too, it was a major change management initiative to, to bring it about. Anytime we went to a new organization, we had a very structured template of how do we deal with the stakeholders and make sure they're completely engaged? How do we deal with middle management, particularly frontline management, because they were going to be our chief ad. And then how do we introduce this to our associate? And you and I have talked about this a whole bunch. Um, we tried to make the associate introduction a lot of fun. And so we actually would create online scavenger hunts where we would bury prizes inside the DAP or what fix content, as the case may be. And, and and we made it a whole ton of fun and it became a contest and very competitive and it, it worked extremely well in that culture. Right. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still stuck at that JQ thing that you mentioned. Is that a, is that something that is already established or is that something out of your head itself? That came out of uh, the head, but I, I will actually attribute that to a colleague of mine who's still um, one of the learning leaders at Travelers Insurance. But when, when we, he and I worked together, we, we conjured that one up. Got it, got it. So these are things that actually gets established as, you know, pillars of the entire learning thing. Like, I mean, like you said, moments of need and uh, let's say learning in the flow of work. All of these are uh, something that gets stuck and becomes principles in the longer run, right? Correct. And, and a big piece of that was we had to work with our own learning team. Because the learning team had to be brought along. So one of the reasons our we brought in uh, our DAP, which was WhatFix, um, mm -hmm. one of the reasons I believe it was so successful is we had spent many, many hours as a learning team understanding the value and understanding what good looks like when we got there. So that we weren't learning on the fly. We, we didn't go adopt a tool. And then go, now, what do we do with this tool? As a collective group, we had a pretty good concept of what we were trying to achieve. And in partnership with the customer success team and, and whatever else, it, it lined up very nice. Got it, got it. So, Rich, be before we move out of DAP, I had one more question on that. So, definitely, there were a lot of problems in, uh, initially. And you said you already had some systems in place, right? I mean, I'm guessing some, some kind of performance support systems or, like you said, exactly. help. Uh, so, what was that dire need where a DAP could fill it? And, you know, how exactly did it start proving uh, useful to you, right? I mean, I'm trying to understand, um, I mean, yeah, it could be a case study, which is a very long thing, but I'm trying to understand in your in your perspective, a more of a just version of that. Okay, so the, the century story of bringing in the DAP revolved around our claims application, and they were bringing in a brand new claims application. And one of our real challenges and you, you would know this if you know claims or call centers, getting associates to leave their desks for any period of time is a major, major challenge and extremely disruptive to critical call center, customer responses, workflow, et cetera. You know all that. So when we, when we were looking for what is our best strategy around that, we immediately went, here's our opportunity. Let's bring this in. So the goal was to minimize the amount of formal learning or learning that took people away from their desk that took people away from their job. And how do we mm -hmm. minimize that impact to the organization? So it was a perfect foray. So we had lots of great support. It was very, very successful. You know, and, and in other organizations prior, not I'm going off task here a little bit, we actually had a, an 11-week program at one of my prior employers for new, new hire call centers. We redesigned that program with the intent that they were going to have performance support so that they had this capability when they left 
they were learning about the tool. And this is very primitive compared to the current state of DAP. We took and got the same level of performance in six weeks that was prior 11. That ROI in and of itself for the organization was staggered, especially for a large scale organization where there were always new hires coming in the door. So I have some very personal case studies where you know we've seen that happen. And the beauty of bringing what fix into century when we did was the pandemic followed us. And so mm-hmm. what fix or our DAP totally had anecdotally set us up for success with remote working. And we weren't even preparing for that. But when we were hit with it, we had such a strong capability now in our tool set to bring on and work with our new hires remotely. Yeah, it, it was a win-win at that moment. Thanks for sharing that, Richard. I think really set some perspective for people who don't know about DAP or, you know, uh, the entire digital adoption setup within organizations. Uh, and we keep trying to probe this for most of the leaders who come on the show, trying to understand from their organizational setup, like what exactly was the problem statement and, you know, right. how did they come across right. the solution, right? So, yeah, very well put, right? So I had a follow-up question there. So let's say, yes, DAP coming into the picture has helped in evolving L&D in certain, the whole learning curriculum in a different way but there would be still some core aspects of L&D that has remained constant throughout I mean I I would say across your entire career you must have seen there are some core aspects which is there what would those be like I think the core aspects of learning and it it goes back to this idea of having a solid learning strategy that you believe in right so all of those Mm -hmm. principles we talked with I think too many learning organizations don't do that because you've almost got to create your north star what are those non-negotiables all of our learning has to have. And, and and especially from functional technical learning, you need practice, you need repetition, okay. you need reflection, and you need feedback. And you need those core things to happen in regardless of the asset, regardless of what your research or, or experience learns like, how do I bake those in, right? And what a DAP, I think, allows us to do is be far more intentional about our learning assets, because we no longer have to have the same kind of, we don't leverage or need the idea of memorization or 100% practice and repetition because we know this tool is out there on the job. So it changes the way we can design our learning interventions and it should be able to shrink those learning interventions. And the other Mm -hmm. element that I think happens, and maybe I'm going again a little off task here, is It's amazing how a DAP strengthens new user confidence once they've left training, once they've left the formal learning and they feel like they're on their own. And the the impact I have seen, and it's, it's, it's qualitative, it's not a quantitative thing. So that becomes a little harder to measure, but it's been beyond measure in in my experiences. Awesome. And, you know, we touched on this earlier when, when we're talking, um, particularly on the skill development piece, Um, I had a question on that as well. So in most of the reports that, that shows that, you know, most companies are not able to innovate effectively uh, due to skills shortages, right? So do you think new L&D programs, I mean, like DAP or, you know, LXP, LRP, there's so many different aspects of it, yeah. right? How, how do they help in progressing with the skill development? Because this is a people process. It's not a, not a technology aspect or anything like that. So how do you coach someone to make sure that skill development yeah. is consistent? So I like the way you said it is a people problem. So in my head, I have a picture of DAP that a DAP brings the intersection of 
people, process, and technology all together. And so a DAP can help us address all of those components. So, you know, as you alluded, Gokul, um, you know, there, there's just report after report, article after article these days on skill shortages and how do we upskill. And I believe that, you know, we're talking about if you read the top 10 skills, and I just actually saw an article on that, it talks about flexibility, resilience, uh, ability to manage change, ability to use technology. Um, all of those kinds of skills really flow into what a DAP can provide for us. And if we rely on the DAP, then we can take the, the, the chest, the, the cherished classroom time, that, that time we can get people in the room and we can work on those soft skills, right? And, and so I think that holistically, we have a much better opportunity for skill development. My concern about skill development is that it can be too generic and learners only really benefit when we take a skill or whatever we're, t- and put it in the context of a job. Content is one thing. Context is king. So, when we take generic content, which is not a DAP, right? If we take generic content, we need to tell the learner or the user, where does this apply to you today? So that they have that context. And then we need to let them apply it so that they can practice it in the context of their current job. You know, my, my mantra is that if a learner leaves any experience, and this would, does not apply again to a DAP, leaves any experience and wants to know how it applied to their job, then we have failed as learning professionals. We have fallen short because that connection should be very, very evident and very clear to them, whatever it is we're providing. Got it. And um, I'm sure there are a lot of leaders and managers listening to the show. So across the years, what are some of those recurring problems that you see, uh, you know, occurring in these organizations, especially uh, in, in with respect to the entire L&D programs that people set up, right? Again, I'm, I'm still talking on the people uh, problems over there, right? And yeah, w- w- what do you think are the right kind of solutions? How, how do people actually start solving? Them? I, I think some of the things we need to work on as a, as a profession and help solve um, the people problems, I think as a L&D profession, we need to dig deeper into, and I know this isn't helping with the people component directly, the data and analytics that are now available to us as L&D professionals, I don't think we're, we as a profession have learned how to leverage those and gain the insight into our people and their performance that would help us build better, more meaningful learning experiences for them. Mm-hmm. Again, that's one of the things I get excited about with a DAP, right, is we are going to look at workflows. We're going to look at trends. We are going to look at people's performance and the processes and the workflows and the entire, it's systemic. It's not just the people in and of themselves anymore, right? We can't take the people and separate technology, separate process and workflows. They're all integrated. And I think we need to look at that more holistically and systematically. And I think the data and analytics that we now have available to us is new. And our profession doesn't necessarily know what to do with those yet. So I see a great opportunity there. And I think one of the things we can do with people around learning is really work on the democratization of learning and have them participate in delivering learning, sharing learning, sharing content, coaching. I think it's a great opportunity for these folks to build leadership, to demonstrate expertise, and also build the learning culture where they feel that they're part of it. I think the the L&D teams almost need to become more of 
the shepherds or stewards of learning and not the owners of learning and make learning more part of a larger part of the culture and the day-to-day experience of all of the associates in there. One of the things we I've done it successfully at a multiple stops along the way is we built adjunct faculty and the adjunct mm-hmm. faculty would be people that are expert. We would help them become better facilitators and, and better instructors and they build out their leadership capabilities and we would have at, at Century, for example, we had over 100 associates delivering programs beyond mm-hmm. the learning team. And so I think that democratization is, is a big step forward and the idea that we can do more with less. Got it. And, um, you know, I have another question to attach to that uh, on the ROI piece, right? I mean, bringing out ROI or return on investment from L&D, right? And initially yeah. also you had mentioned that, you know, you partner for the particular business outcome for the company rather than, you know, having it as a support mechanism or a support function as such. Correct. So how do you end up measuring the ROI, uh, especially for all the tech investments or, you know, a- entire cost center that comes from L&D particularly? I, the simplest place that we found true ROI is in the savings of a particular initiative and how we delivered it. And, mm-hmm. and so we could show genuine savings. So for example, when I first got in a century, we needed to bring all of our sales associates together. They were going to sell new products They were going to partner and we were going to have to have four regional meetings across the entire country. And we, we quantified what are those four regional meetings cost three days, hotels, flights, several hundred associates. Well, we proposed a different function where we said, well, let's build an online resource with all the exemplar performers and coaches and mentors and best practices. And then when it was time to practice, we buddied up the sales associates, senior person with a junior person, and they had ride-along coaching sessions. So they were coaching one another while they were actually driving to their their client calls. And mm-hmm. then we had feedback from managers on weekly phone calls and whatnot. Well, the mm-hmm. ROI of moving, and that was highly, highly successful, by the way, the ROI of that alone was close to $300,000, simply because we took a different approach. Mm-hmm. And we were actually, and we didn't even ROI, like, for example, coaching and mentoring was happening during car rides that were happening anyways. Wow. So, you know, so there, there's those opportunities where I think we can look at just our ability to deliver. Now, when I look at DAP and I look at an ROI, again, at at Century, I mentioned our claim story. We were able to go remote with our claims learning by choice, yeah. not necessarily because of the pandemic, but by choice in in large part because we had what fix attached to the program. So even though our program still took the same amount of time, traditionally everyone would fly and stay in Stevens Point for over two weeks. So mm-hmm. the ROI there alone, you know, and, and, and some of the century numbers I know have been published on some of our websites at WhatFix, um, but they were attributed to just the fact that we took a different delivery modality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, that's that's definitely an inter- interesting point. I mean, people don't really look at how much they spend for doing this as well. So that is also a big part of the ROI. No <laughs> question. No question. And the important thing about knowing and, and we worked with the business a lot on KPIs, right? We were talking about those. And we had, and again, because I spent so much time with our stakeholders up front, we understood that a KPI would never be 100% attributable to the learning difference because there's a lot of elements. There's coaching, there's abilities, there's a lot of elements in that system. But we could always point to the KPI and say, guess what? We did it this way and the KPI looked like this. We did it this way and the KPI might be the same. So we mm-hmm. saved a, a lot of money in our distribution or delivery, but we're getting the same result. And that alone is a win. 
that alone is an ROI. Amazing, amazing. All right, Rich. I think uh, I have one last question. <laughs> right. I, I know we could talk a lot, but I think yeah, I, I have to restrict it with the time frame that has been told to me. Right. So <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> right. So uh, coming to that. So how do you think? L&D will change or evolve in 2023. I mean, we are, we are in January right now, and I think there's a lot to expect for the rest of the year. And yes, there's a massive slowdown worldwide, right? People are seeing it across different organizations. And is it the same in insurance industry or, you know, in, in L&D from your peer network? What are you hearing? Yeah. In insurance, I think insurance is lagging from its impact to the economic slowdown right now. I think it will take a toll, but right now you're still seeing hiring, you're still seeing growth, but I think you're seeing very different pricing and sales models going. So there will be that trickle down impact in the insurance industry. But I think this concept of, and I got to be careful because I don't want to say this incorrectly, but the ability to do more with less it should be prominent in minds, right? And I, I believe that we should be looking at different delivery mechanisms for learning in the future. So how do we reduce formal learning? How can we consolidate? How can we leverage learning in the flow of work uh, more effective? And again, those are, those are DAP things. I think this concept of democratization that I already alluded to and the idea of let's be shepherds and stewards and not the sole owners of learning where you can actually leverage lots of other capabilities across an organization and not rely solely on one team would, would uh, allow that to happen. One of the things we did with What Fix It Century was we relied on a lot of the business people, we'd kind of certify them, so to speak, to build out the context. So it didn't always come back to that one team. And the idea of this just becomes a shared service of sorts. So I, I see all of that. And, and I see people, uh, one of the things I get excited about, top 10, I see the top 10 trends in learning, right? We see those reports every day, all day from all sorts of resources. I see DAP hitting those. And what, what hmm. that tells me is people are beginning to pay more attention to this concept of learning in the flow of work. And I, I see us turning that corner finally. So I'm excited to see where that goes. Love it. I think, um, Rich, thanks a lot for taking the time. And I, I really, I personally really enjoyed the conversation. And um, I know there's a lot to learn. Maybe they, we could have a follow-up podcast sometime, for sure. <laughs> but yeah, thanks a lot for taking the time, Rich. No, go, go. I, any, enjoy, I enjoyed this very much, and I really appreciate you having me. Thank you. Right. Any, any parting thoughts? I, I don't have parting thoughts other than I know one thing I, I wanted to bring out as I talked about my career. One of the things I always give as advice to people that are looking to advance their careers in L&D is one of the things that I think helped me be successful was I got to sit in all the seats along the way. I was a facilitator. I was a designer. I was a developer, a project manager, a team lead, a supervisor, and, and finally, more of a, a, a leader executive. And I was never, ever the best at any of those things. I could name today people that were vastly superior to me in any of those particular seats. But one of the reasons I think if, if I've had success as a leader in L&D, it's because I understand and appreciate that entire cycle and all of the aspects of learning. And I, I encourage people to move sideways in their career sometimes and not always just need to go upward to, to become effective as a leader over time. So that would be my, my, my parting advice. That's a really powerful thought, Rich. Definitely really powerful. Right. And, um, I'm I'm sure there would be people who would want to reach out to you after hearing this podcast. And how how can they reach out to you? Uh, the best way to reach me would be at uh, my Whatfix email, Richard Boris 
at whatfix.com, or I'm very happy to connect via LinkedIn. Awesome. All right. So thanks, Rich. And uh, I think that's, that's the end of this episode. And so stay tuned for more such interesting concepts on digital adoption strategies, platforms, and uh, a lot on L&D, right? So that's the digital adoption show for you. And this is me, Gokul, uh, the host of this episode. Right. Thanks, Rich, again. Thank you. Thank you.